0: There's a certain power to people not knowing who you are. A bit of a shield that I think many people choose to hide behind today. But what are they hiding from? Are they scared about secrets getting out? Are they hiding from a face that they put on every day, looking for a little bit of freedom after a long day of work or school? Or are they up to something a bit more nefarious? Maybe they're putting on a mask of anonymity like a bank robber putting on a ski mask. My name is John Cordes, and today, we're going to talk about, to talk about, to talk about, to talk about, 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 about.
1: Hello, listeners of What the Shell. We are Anonymous. We have been watching you, listening, reading your posts. Take note, because in today's episode, you will learn of who we are, how we began, and what the Shell we did to inspire such a massive following. We are Anonymous. We are Legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget. Expect us.
0: Okay, well that was a little bit weird. But let's get into the episode, right? To get into what Anonymous is, we first need to figure out how it came to be. So let's turn back the clock to 2003. The social landscape on the internet was in an entirely different age than it is right now. If today we have a more modern age of the internet then these were very much the days of the wild, wild west. The only hint of anywhere social media was really going had barely gotten off the ground, and that was my space. So we're talking about the first steps of a precursor to where we are right now. It was the age of discussion forums, of live journal posts, and recently there was a new kind of platform starting to bud. Image boards. An image board was a very simple kind of site where users could interact with an initial post of an image, sometimes replying with images of their own or comments on it. Pretty frequently, those sites were so bare bones that there weren't even user accounts tied to it. Over in Japan, one particular site was starting to gain a bit of traction. It was an image board site called the Futaba Channel, or as it's more commonly known in the U.S., 2chan. That's C-H-A-N. The whole premise of that site was to allow users to post images and discussions relating to games and anime. Well, a 15 year old named Christopher Poole saw this and decided to make an unofficial offshoot of it for English speakers, to make it a bit more accessible to him and his friends. I sometimes like to wonder at these moments if he had any idea that as he deployed that site for the first time, how much he was about to change the internet. On October 1st, 2003, Chris Poole published the website 4chan.net, that's the number 4, C-H-A-N, dot net. The site took many of its cues from its older sibling 2chan, being a site for the discussion of anime, tabletop and video games, and even things like health and fitness. In the early days, it was a bizarre and unique haven for people who used the internet and wanted to create and share their own content. Or even just talk about the content they were watching. A lot, and I mean a lot, of internet culture as we know it today started on sites like this. The lolcats phase, Rickrolling, Rage Comics, they can all be tracked back to having their roots on these kind of image boards before making their way out to the internet at large. Hell, the most early version of some of the meme formats we see now started on these boards as what were called demotivational posters. But as time has proven again and again, whenever a site starts to grow like this, there also tends to include a stain. Boards started to appear on the site that would quickly pass the limits of legality and morality, including some rather sexually explicit boards. One such part of a site would become a frequent flyer with controversy and the media. And that was the board dedicated to random posts, or as it was commonly known, Slash B. That's B as in Bravo. It's called Slash B because when you went to 4chan.net Slash B, that's how you would get redirected to the random part of a site. While most of the separate boards stayed in their own lanes in terms of conversation, Slash B had no such qualms about venturing into territory that would make anyone uncomfortable. Radical discussions would start to happen more frequently here, that would fall into the category of things like extreme racism, or sexism. Far-leaning political motives on both sides of the aisle would come up, and there would often be some level of activism efforts organized on that front as well. It was a bizarre part of a website, where one post might be what someone was eating for breakfast, and the next one might be of extreme hate and at the time, the bulk of the user base could be attributed to boys in their teens and early 20s. I'm not saying it was entirely that, but you know, it was a safe bet. There would be the occasional outlier back then, but it was simply who the site was attracted to and circulated with. I think that the level of perceived anonymity that users had there wasn't really like anything we'd seen before, outside of things like the old IRC chats. With no accounts and no real user history to show, I think people ran with that and did things on the site that they thought couldn't really be tracked or led back to. Now keep in mind, I'm using the phrase perceived anonymity here. On the user side of it, it truly looked as though everyone was in the same boat. They all posted as an anonymous user, each post could be anyone, and the closest it would come to any kind of username would be the eventual implementation of an ID that would appear on the site to help prevent bots or rigged conversations. And even then, the ID would only apply to single threads in an effort to maintain that anonymity. On the back end, though, the site was hosted in the United States, and ultimately there likely wasn't as much privacy as they made it out to have. I'm sure IP addresses were logged, and if push came to shove, cooperation was likely to be had, but we'll get into that a bit later. My point here is that every user shows as, quote, anonymous. Everyone was the same. It didn't matter who you really were, what you did in real life. You were an Anon, as they called themselves. Eventually the phrase, we are anonymous, would start to lead to some interesting events and motivations. So as the user base of those Anons grew, they started to realize that they held a bit of power with the numbers of their group. It started with what were basically pranks, Because these were kids. Some of you might disagree here, but it's true. They were by and large a group of kids in their teens, some of them in their early 20s, but even still, I'd consider that a kid at this point. Some of the things they would do would be flood sites like Club Penguin or Habbo Hotel with users and make it pretty much unusable. It might sound like a funny little dig at an attempt on a denial of service attack, but, when you realize that they pretty frequently flooded the chats with anti-semitism or racist remarks, it starts to become a bit less light-hearted. Now, like I said, essentially what they were doing here is a light version of a denial-of-service attack. By flooding the user base with their own agenda here, for everyone else, it was a hassle to get on and enjoy the product. A modern denial-of-service attack and hacking takes that concept except Instead of people logging in and creating accounts, they send packets or requests from a range of computers, usually in some kind of automated fashion. Those would then take action against a website by interacting with it or a service and flood it with requests to the point where it was no longer able to stay online. Those pranks that they were doing would start to become more and more complex though and delve closer and closer into full-on hacking as time went by. But the people of this forum were determined to be, in their minds at least, on the moral high ground. You'll remember that in some of our previous episodes, I've talked about hackers operating on the grounds of what they believe to be right and just. In the hacking community, we call it hacktivism. Whether it's because they think protests aren't enough or because it's what they know how to do, the black hack community has always had this subset that had been determined to use the skills they've got to dismantle their opposition. In some cases, it's a lone hacker ticking away at the system but in others it's an entire group of people. They'll pool information, share their skills and abilities, and work together toward a single common goal. And in doing so, become greater than the sum of their parts. And this is where we land with a wide group of people on 4chan. What started as pranks eventually organized, taking the moniker of quote, anonymous, to try and do right by what they believed. That didn't mean they were saints. There were people in that group that were only there for laughs or to be a part of something bigger, But, they did do some pretty interesting stuff starting in the mid-2000s, so let's get into that. We'll flash forward to 2006, where we can start chronicling some of their antics a bit more heavily. And we'll move over to a man named Hal Turner. Turner, who himself identified as a neo-Nazi, hosted a radio show and blog to spread his beliefs any way he could. Well, after Turner himself had been the victim of some of the prank calls that tended to originate on 4chan and through Anonymous, he was able to get the information on a few of the people involved. Hal Turner, to all his neo-Nazi community, decided to publish those details. And that would include the names and phone numbers of some of the people who were prank calling him. Up to that point, 4chan and Anonymous had been, how they called it, trolling. They were just aiming to get whatever reaction they could out of anyone that would listen in this case mr turner was in the crosshairs but when turner fired back anonymous decided that they wanted to take it up a notch you see turner had his website set up so that he would pay based on the bandwidth use that's to say that the more views his website got the more it cost to host with a relatively consistent community he knew what to expect for bills each month However, after he doxxed those people from Anonymous, members of that group decided that they wanted to demonstrate that he really messed up. The easiest thing it could do with the highest impact? Well, they made it look like his site was super popular. They flooded it with traffic to the point where the cost to him was enormous, in the order of thousands of dollars. It was a major win for the still budding Anonymous, but the group had, at this point, started to move away from 4chan and into what was called IRC chat so that they could truly be Anonymous. Because I think even with this, they realized their privacy wasn't as guaranteed as they thought. You might be thinking to yourself, okay, John has mentioned IRCs a few times at this point. What are they? Well, IRC stands for Internet Relay Chat. Basically, it was a form of instant messaging that operated in a way where chat was relayed through a server and allowed for a more private experience if you knew how to configure it properly. It wasn't anonymous per se, but privacy was possible with it. And while IRCs are still alive today, they aren't the gold standard that they used to be. They're now used by a pretty decreasing number of people, but if you look, you'll still be able to find some. And since I'm littering this episode with internet precursors, you can think of this as a distant ancestor to Discord or Matrix. So the point here is that with these IRC chat groups, Anonymous started to solidify a bit. Members started to make themselves a bit more known, internally, and moved beyond the Anon handle. It was a more widespread recognition of their capabilities, so they began to try to organize. Then, in 2008, Anonymous, as I think many of us come to think of it, began to enter the limelight, after a video of Tom Cruise going a bit off the walls for Scientology became pretty widespread. You might be thinking how do i get from point a to point b here but it wasn't just that the videos were spread throughout the internet it was that the church of scientology itself spent an enormous amount of time money and resources systematically removing that video wherever they could you can still find it today but it's not really easy to get to anonymous saw that as a kind of internet censorship attempt and didn't really take too well to that concept so they decided to focus some efforts toward a retaliation that started with this video titled, A Message to Scientology.
1: Hello, leaders of Scientology. We are anonymous. Over the years, we have been watching you, your campaigns of misinformation, your suppression of dissent, your litigious nature. All of these things have caught eye. Right. With the leakage of your latest propaganda video into mainstream circulation, the extent of your malign influence over those who have come to trust you as leaders has been made clear to us. Anonymous has therefore decided that your organization should be destroyed, for the good of your followers, for the good of mankind and for our own enjoyment, we shall proceed to expel you from the internet and systematically dismantle the church of Scientology in its present form. We recognize you as serious opponents, and do not expect our campaign to be completed in a short time frame, however, you will not prevail forever against the angry masses of the body politic, your choice of methods. Your hypocrisy and the general artlessness of your organization have sounded its death now. You have nowhere to hide. Because we are everywhere. You will find no recourse in attack. Because for each of us that falls, ten more will take this place. We are cognizant of the many who may decry our methods as parallel to those of the Church of Scientology. Those who espouse the obvious truth that your organization will use the actions of Anonymous as an example of the persecution of which you have for so long warned your followers, This is acceptable to anonymous. In fact, it is encouraged. We are your SPs. Over time, as we begin to merge our pulse with that of your church, the suppression of your followers will become increasingly difficult to maintain. Believers will become aware that salvation needn't come at the expense of their livelihood. They will become aware that the stress and the frustration that they feel is not due to us, but a source much closer to them. Yes, we are SPs, but the sum of suppression we could ever muster is eclipsed by that of your own RTC. Knowledge is free. We are Anonymous. We are Legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget. Expect us.
0: They called this attack, Operation Chanology. That's a fairly straightforward combination of 4chan and Scientology. Mainly the aim of the attack was, again, denial of service. They would distribute their attacks throughout the network of anonymous members and that load would be distributed across a much larger area to make things a little more difficult to block. The attack is aptly called, in this case, a distributed denial-of-service attack. Anyways, Operation Chanology took their aim at anything public they could DDoS to find for Scientology. That included websites, phone lines, fax lines, and once they moved past that, they'd even managed to leak some of the internal church documents that they got access to. It was just well-orchestrated enough to look impressive, but when you take a closer look you can really see that there wasn't much depth to what they were doing. That didn't really matter though, because it was widespread enough that it started a bit of a cult following towards the group. It acted almost as much as a recruitment ad as an attack on Scientology. Support for Anonymous was growing pretty rapidly at this point. And part of that was their constant online posting that this was hacktivism. It was a just cause that anyone could participate in. In fact, they made it really easy to participate, even if you had no idea what you were doing. Because in the depths of their threads and discussions, a tool was created called the Low Orbit Ion Cannon. This wasn't the only one, but it was a rather popular one. And it wasn't particularly impressive, but it was easy to use. And that's all that mattered. It meant anyone that took it could effectively be a quote hacker. It was a simple interface that let you enter a web address or an IP address into and then it would set an attack on that site. It was a denial of service attack. It flooded the destination with packets that would potentially knock the system over if it wasn't well protected. And with that being dispersed across its user base, all that then needed to be done was to post a time, a date, And an attack target and hope that the anonymous community joined you in your attack i've got a screenshot of this tool on my website and on the instagram account so feel free to pop over to those to take a look it worked well too it was easy to find easy to use and in fact when i was in high school around this time i knew someone who had the tool they pointed it at our school's website one afternoon and knocked it down with just one device Now, if that was a testament to the school's lack of security or the tool's effectiveness, I don't really know. It's probably a little bit of both. The point being was, it worked. And it worked for kids, for teenagers, for people who had no idea about what hacking really was, they could use this tool to knock something over. But back to Operation Chinology. A heavy bit of back and forth would go on between Anonymous, who claimed that they were doing the right thing, and Scientology, who claimed to be the victim of the so-called internet hate machine. With the encouragement of Scientology critic Mark Bunker, the group opted to start showing their capability outside of the hate machine designation that was given to them, in the form of more and more legal protests. That included the organization of protests in over 100 cities internationally, each with its own Facebook group and IRC channel to facilitate. The protests delivered, too. It was encouraged by a lot of the groups to wear face coverings because Scientology often had a history of delving into the lives of its critics, and people took that advice. But one group set the ball rolling on what would become Anonymous' most iconic image. That was the London protest, which was overwhelmed with people wearing the Guy Fawkes mask. I think part of the reason is because that mask was pretty well available because of the success of the 2006 movie V for Vendetta. And users all kind of felt a bit of an attraction to it, because I think that hacktivism meshed well with the message of the film. The London protest, which ended up being among the largest of those protests organized, was the gold standard for media coverage for quite some time with regards to Anonymous. And it cemented this as a look for the group. Ultimately, it didn't do too much more than shine a light on the problem in Scientology. But it can't be said that it wasn't a bright light, that attention that it got was rather amazing to see broadcast. And even though Scientology kept strong after this, it was a big blow to their public image. And even more, it was the increase that Anonymous needed to boost their legitimacy as a threat and increase their user base to an all-time high. And things might really feel like they're blowing up at this point. It's 2009, and the group is a pop culture icon. They're carrying out what seems to be increasingly more complex attacks, and they're seemingly making some strides in their causes. But with any group that grows in size like this, it almost always becomes too big to be just one decentralized group of people. Smaller splinter cells start to form here. Groups like Lulsec branch off into their own subset of a cause, preferring perhaps to have a more specific cause or a smaller user base. No matter what, those splinter groups they start to distance themselves from a parent group and personally i think part of this was a little bit of hacker elitism i think that some of the more legitimate black hats that were a part of anonymous were a bit unwilling to be associated with what were pretty commonly referred to as script kitties a script kitty is someone that doesn't really know much about the concepts of hacking they just have some tools that they're going to throw a problem like that low orbit ion cannon i was talking about and call themselves a hacker no matter what the outcome was. By creating those smaller groups, they'd be able to curate the membership a bit and really own their own cred. And with that small set of dominoes falling, things kind of died down a little bit that year, but they'd pick back up in 2010. So that's where we're going to head next. It's no secret that those willing to blur the lines of black hat hacking and activism probably weren't squeaky clean in all aspects of their life. For example, I think something that's not unreasonable to expect from these people is that they might be doing something like pirating. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility to say someone involved in Anonymous might want to pirate their movies or software or really whatever they felt like in the moment. It meshes pretty well with a vibe of being free from big corporations that a lot of other groups really felt like they were putting out there. So. In 2010, when a bunch of major media corporations decided to try and play their hand at the Black Hat game, things got a bit weird. Companies like the Motion Picture Association of America and the Recording Industry of America were getting pretty tired of pirates cutting into their profit margins. So they thought they'd fight a little bit of fire with fire. That's where an Indian company called iPlex Software comes into the story. The MPAA and RIA reached out to IPLEX because they had a history of performing denial of service attacks for a fee. So, to take the battle right up to the pirate ship, so to say, they were hired to bring down major torrenting sites like the Pirate Bay. Yeah, it's a bit weird, but hey, if you think there were consequences here for that, you'd be right. Hell, it's why we're even talking about it right now, right? So, 4chan and anonymous got wind of that and decided to launch what they called operation payback on september 19th 2010. yet again it was another ddos campaign this time aimed at the mpaa the RIA, and any other major entertainment industry icon they could think of the attack was pretty successful too the campaign would consistently take down sites for almost a month they went medieval on those companies and effectively sieged the castle of their sites, holding near continuous denial-of-service attacks in some form or another for the bulk of that time. They would spend a month attacking the movie industry, both British and American pornography industries, and even going so far as to attack the legal firms that would specialize in copyright infringement. They spread a pretty wide net for attack, and it was pretty successful in what it caught. It sounded like a fitting battle, in my opinion. I don't think either side of that fight was completely in the right or wrong. On the one hand, you can't deny the predatory nature of the entertainment industry. But on the other hand, you've got this black hat group that decided a bombardment campaign was the way to express that dissatisfaction. The total downtime they caused across all the targeted sites that month was almost 600 hours. As the operation died down a bit, it seemed like that was the end of the battle. But then in November 2010, Wikileaks started to release hundreds of classified documents regarding the U.S. government. That came much to the praise of the community and anonymous, but also much to the chagrin of the United States, and many of the companies that were seeing their secrets revealed as a part of that. Wikileaks, which, if you don't know, was a site dedicated to exposing secrets, aka leaking them, was starting to experience denial of service attacks against its site as well, similar to how the Pirate Bay and Torrenting sites had been attacked early on. Anonymous decided that was a fight worth hitching onto, and as a part of a statement, said this. While we don't have much of an affiliation with WikiLeaks, we fight for the same reasons. We want transparency, and we counter censorship. The attempts to silence WikiLeaks are long strides closer to a world where we cannot say what we think, and are unable to express our opinions and ideas. The group decided that they were going to help out by lending out some services, like offering Wikileaks an additional website so that they could have another site up in case the first one goes down. They created counter-propaganda, they organized DDoS attacks on various targets that related to censorship, and they contacted media entities to inform them that Operation Payback, as they called it, had come out in full support of Wikileaks and has declared war on the entities involved in censoring. In December, the attacks went on to target PayPal, Visa, and MasterCard, all sites that were refusing to allow donations to WikiLeaks. The number of targets at the end of that campaign expanded to cover over 75 more service interruptions across different websites. It's another instance of the group picking a battle and committing where they can, even if it's largely in just a denial-of-service style attack. Through early 2011 and 2012, things kind of stayed the same for the group. There would occasionally be spun up instances of denial of service coordination against government sites, both domestic to the U.S. and international. But as their notoriety grew, I think so did the security industries want to be able to combat them. Different security firms had taken up efforts that would be put toward identifying some of the members of Anonymous. After all, if you can put a name to an anonymous face, then you take away a large part of their power and identity. That's the entire facade that they're hiding behind, their anonymity. So, when in early 2011, Aaron Barr, the head of security services for the firm H.B. Gary Federal, said he uncovered identities of some of the big players in Anonymous, it got the attention of a group. He was claiming that he was ready to unmask some of these users for mainly what were the attacks we just talked about as a part of Operation Payback. It started with Barr getting his work published for the Financial Times. He had been doing research on unmasking and uncovering identities online. And the day after, the site for H.B. Gary started to receive some strange traffic heading its way. It appeared as though Anonymous was gearing up to retaliate against his company for the story that was published. And Barr, wanting to curb that, decided that he wanted to try to take some action with the group. Barr had been taking his time, profiling who he believed to be members for social media and undercover on IRC chats. He even had his own handle that he called himself CogAnon, C O G. A-N-O-N. After he'd piled up enough evidence, he'd written his research, started to get the ball rolling on putting it out there, and Venvet's story was published. But since Barr considered himself a bit of a hacker as well, he thought he could appeal to a group that was seemingly starting to target him and his company by reaching out directly to some of the people he'd identified as its leaders. One such person went by Commander X. Barr had attributed a Facebook profile to this guy. And reached out directly to him he said quote this is my research i'm not going to release names i'm merely doing security research to prove the vulnerability of social media so please tell blank and blank or whoever else is hitting our site to stop those blanks were redacted in what i was able to find so i'm keeping them as that originally commander x here feigned some ignorance but barr pushed He pushed that he wanted Commander X to tell the leadership of what was happening. And Commander X would scoff at that, claiming that Anonymous had grown beyond his control. And that's exactly what he said he wanted. With a couple more veiled threats, conversation would eventually fizzle, so Barr took back to the IRC. He wanted to try to find his way in with people there. And in doing so, he blew the cover of the COG Anon identity. He doubled down on his push that this wasn't specifically about Anonymous, just about social media and that he'd researched much more than just this. The members of that chat didn't really seem to be receptive to it, and closed out the conversation by asking Kagan on if he'd maybe enjoy what they were uploading right now. What were they uploading? Well, it turned out to be the entirety of Barr's private emails. While these conversations were happening, they managed to get into a machine that wasn't super important on the HB Gary network, and pivot over to the company email server. From there, they took over 40,000 messages from a top three executives and uploaded them to be shared through torrents. An amazing amount of damage had been done here. The company would definitely see a financial hit from that kind of breach, and they still needed to clean up the security mess on top of that. For the next bit, I'm going to upload the full transcript to my website, whattheshellpod.com. If you click on the episode, you'll see a full transcript of this episode with this specific part as well. But. They went back and forth on that IRC chat for a bit, with Barr feeling less and less sorry as time went on because they were giving him more and more of an attitude. As I'm reading this transcript, it's pretty apparent that the people in Anonymous were putting up a bit of a front because Barr was starting to work with the FBI as well and they knew it. I think you can kind of infer through some of this that it was being done out of fear. They clearly want him to stop working with the FBI, but at the same time, they're telling him that he's got nothing real. Ultimately, it did end up with Barr working with the FBI and giving him what he had, and Anonymous continued to attack him personally. His Twitter would get hacked and defaced. He'd become a bit of an internet star of notoriety for a minute, and he'd actually end up losing access to his own Twitter account as a result. Anonymous demanded his resignation, and ultimately, on the last day of February in 2011, they got it. He said he was leaving HB Gary Federal to focus on taking care of his family and rebuilding his reputation that had gone down so far. I really have to empathize with him on this. I like to do my research on vulnerabilities and attackers when I can. And I'd like to think that if I could have done something that would ultimately lead to some good by identifying some individuals doing bad, I would. But here we have a guy who, in trying to do the right thing and publish his own research, was squashed pretty hard. It's a sad story, and I wanted to highlight this particular instance because I need to make sure that you see both sides of this group. If you take away anything from this, it should be that Anonymous is not one group with a set goal. There's many different people with many different attitudes, and they can do good, yeah, but they can do bad, too. And as long as they can get some traction internally, you'd never know what side you were on until it's too late. Let's step out of 2011 and into 2012, when this happened. Right here in Newtown, Connecticut, the site today of a mass shooting, and this time, gunfire aimed at elementary school children. We're here in front of the Newtown United Methodist Church where we've watched people gathering all evening long, as tonight the details are still pouring in. A 20-year-old in Connecticut went on a shooting spree at Sandy Hook Elementary School, killing 20 people in total, and members of a Westboro Baptist church claimed they were planning on picketing the vigils for the victims. This church had made a major name for themselves by picketing deaths of soldiers and incidents of school shootings, or any other tragic event they could find because they claim that this is justice for what America has let happen to itself through things like marriage equality. Their claim is that it's God's punishment against us. It's messed up. Like, real messed up. If you look into it, it's bad. These people are horrible. but. Apparently Anonymous thought so too. Through a campaign of sifting through public records and social engineering, Anonymous was able to effectively dox many of the members that were planning on attending that picket. And by doing so, they put the pressure back on the church, and it was placed in such a large volume that they never ended up picketing that event. They backed off entirely. That time, poking the hornet's nest did some good that I don't think many would have argued against. It was a nice win for their reputation. And I'll say that I'm going to close out now with one of the bigger events for the episode that started in 2011 but is still having ripples today. It's the Occupy Wall Street movement, which had started to become a force at that time. The Occupy movement aimed to target income inequality, specifically using the slogan that targeted the top 1% of the economy. And regardless of your views on that protest series, it's hard to ignore the impact that was had. It was widely publicized and many different protests had spawned because of it. That word was spreading like wildfire, and eventually Anonymous got involved as well. Depending on who you ask, the role of Anonymous could be anything from, well, they started the movement, to they never touched it, what are you talking about? But as always, the answer lies somewhere in the middle. What we know they did do was offer more of a supporting role to this group. For example, when attackers went after our website, AmpedStatus.com, which hosted the movement's website, Anonymous hacktivists contacted David DeGrasse the journalist who coined the term the 99%, and was a foundation for a lot of the information here. They reached out to him to offer a more secure and robust site. That cooperation would lead into Anonymous working with the cause to publish a list of demands as a part of a movement. And when it was clear that those demands weren't being taken seriously, they used their reputation to organize. They initially tried to organize protests in around 23 different cities, but the numbers for turnout weren't great. So throughout the remainder of the next year, they tried to drum up more and more support, and would eventually organize again in September, when nearly 1,000 people would come out in New York to join in. You might remember this video that they put out as a part of their pre-protest effort.
1: Hello, citizens of the internet. We're anonymous. On September 17th, anonymous will flood into lower Manhattan, set up tents, kitchens, peaceful barricades, and occupy Wall Street for a few months. Once there? We shall incessantly repeat one simple demand in a plurality of voices we want freedom this is a non-violent protest we do not encourage violence in any way the abuse and corruption of corporations banks and governments ends here join us we are anonymous we are legion we do not forgive we do not forget wall street expect us
0: it ended up kind of being another example of anonymous over promising and under delivering They didn't really flood Wall Street, but they did get people to show up at least. A lot of them. Like I said, over a thousand, and it got a lot of news coverage. To anyone watching at home, it really did look like they were occupying Wall Street, and that's really, I guess, what matters. Their role from then on out pretty much stayed the course for what we've talked about so far. They would DDoS government websites as a form of protest, and Wall Street sites where they could too. They'd continue to try to get traction for the movement and get to the numbers that they really wanted to see for turnout, but sometimes all they'd do is just hack Twitter accounts too, of anyone that was against them. It was sounding a bit like a record skipping to me and repeating on the same line. The unbridled force of they promised never really appeared, and the movement would stay largely on the internet. They'd try again over the next few years and get some more positive results in terms of protest by forming something called the Million Mask March, that would be a protest that was aimed at hitting government corruption, and it would occur on the 5th of November each year. The first and largest of those to happen in 2012 would proceed for at least 2015, but they really did kind of fizzle out. So what happened to Anonymous? Well, technically they're still out there doing their thing today. It's just less and less in the limelight. Some of the major players were arrested, and we'll be getting to that in part 2 of this episode. But, honestly, I think that what happened here is a lot of them either grew up or grew out. Sure, there were talented hackers there, but they probably were in that splintered-off group that I was talking about. The ones that remained? They tried, and ultimately, when all they were able to do was DDoS a website or launch a brigade against a social media account, I think it hit them a bit harder than it did everyone else. And that, in and of itself, would become a task, too, because protection against denial of service attacks has only gotten more and more advanced. It's pretty easy to defend against now. And it's even easier to see how people may have started dropping out because these didn't work as much. But what we talked about in today's episode was just the tip of the iceberg. The big names of the hacks that they had gotten into, and some of the big impacts they made. I encourage you to do some research on your own time if you want to see how many other things they had their hands in. There was a lot of good and a lot of bad, as always but I didn't have time to get to all of it today. We'll be having a part two in a few weeks with this, but for now, the biggest takeaway from Eva's episode is honestly the power of the internet mob mentality. That group was frequently pointed toward targets, and if I had to guess, some of them only knew what they were doing because some person higher up in the thread that they saw told them to do it. It's scary how out of control it did get and could have gotten if someone wanted to point them at something that was only for their own good. It's happened on 4chan, that site that all this stemmed from. And it'll happen again. Some of these people wanted to just cause trouble. Some wanted to find a cause. All of them wanted to make an impact, I think. And with no clear structure, it was just that much easier to bring people on, point them at a target, even if they had no idea what it was. It's a scary concept, but interesting nonetheless. I'm John Cordes, and thanks for listening to me explain what the Shell Anonymous is, and what they did to earn their reputation. Before I go this week, I've got one or two things for you all too. You may have noticed it's Wednesday. Well, it might be Wednesday if you're listening to this. But the point is, in an effort to get this out on a more consistent early morning release time, I've moved it out a day. This way, when you wake up on Wednesday morning, it should be downloaded for you on your phone. One other thing, if you can please share this with a friend or through your social media online, I don't have much more than my own interactions and word of mouth to get us going. And from what I can gather, there's a couple hundred of you listening at this point. So any help to spread the word will only get us more and more content in the future. And lastly, I want to remind you that if listening on your phone isn't the optimal place or you want more content, you can check out my new website, whattheshellpod.com. It's all one word. There you'll find links to all of our episodes, playable in the browser, and you'll also find links to our various social pages, including our own Discord channel, where you can come and discuss episodes with me and others in the community. For this episode, you'll also be able to see that conversation I was talking about between Aaron Barr and Anonymous members. So, thanks for listening. I'll see you all in two weeks with another episode.